And I was looking at the agricultural space and realized that there was nothing from electrification whatsoever. No electrified vehicles, just a completely blank space. The other thing from the manufacturing side that I found was if you look at a farm operation and understand what it is, a farm is a factory for food. And what I didn't see was manufacturing process, manufacturing discipline, manufacturing technologies, manufacturing management of what should be a manufacturing process. And I think that that was the light bulb moment for me. Before any world-changing innovation, there was a moment, an event, a realization that sparked the idea. Before It Happened is a show about that idea. I'm Donna Laughlin, and each week I'll take you on a deep dive into a singular light bulb moment that inspired the visionaries to push forward and change our lives. On this podcast, you'll hear from innovators from an array of industries and philosophies who imagined and are still imagining the future. Grab your passport and let's go on a journey together. We are in the midst of the fourth industrial revolution and the EV transportation era is pushing other industries to think differently. We've spoken to experts on two wheels and four wheels, including environmentalists and farmers. And today we are going to talk about the need for EV processes designed for the future with 15-year EV veteran, Mark Schwager, who took his expertise from the Tesla Gigafactory to the field. But let's step back for a moment and look at the big picture. Farms are notoriously inefficient, missed production targets, painful labor shortages, clumsy manual control trucks. These all pile up cost and waste. Agriculture is also carbon heavy, It's responsible for nearly 11% of greenhouse gases worldwide. There's a far better path. And that's where our guest Mark Schwager and his team at Monarch Tractor roll in with the world's first electric autonomous smart tractor. Mark was recently honored as a 40 under 40 leader to watch based on his background as a manufacturing expert and leader. He previously headed the Tesla Gigafactory leading the project from concept to construction. He also managed the operations planning team, built the business systems for Tesla's Fremont factory, and led the manufacturing program for the Tesla-Toyota RAV4 EV collaboration. Now, he's applying his deep engineering and production background to an exciting new goal at Monarch Tractor, automating the farm. Mark's journey to engineering began with an unlikely childhood passion for the performing arts. Here's how it all started. So let's go back before we get into kind of the whole EV evolution and what you're doing currently at Monarch Tractor. Let's go back to earlier days. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Baltimore, Maryland. I said that enunciated, so I should say Baltimore if I'm using my native tongue. And how did growing up in Baltimore, what was that world like for you? How did it shape who you are today? I tried a bunch of different things before I found my way to technology and manufacturing of technology. In fact, I don't think that as growing up, I I mean, I like Legos and Erector Set, but I didn't really engage heavily in, in technology until until much, much later. I actually went to a high school for performing arts. So very, very, very different path that I ended up on as an adult. Interesting. So you're in a city that's known for industry and you studied performing arts. Was that as an outlet and a means to not be part of that more 
industrial technical world or how did that evolve? No, I think um, life is an evolution and it's not a straight path. And I think that was my passion at that time. And by the time I started learning things like high school calculus and physics, I kind of started gravitating more towards it, even though I went to a special high school for performing arts. What was the aspect of performing arts that you focused on? I sang. Wow. So you could actually sing that song, Good Morning Baltimore. (laughs) (laughs) So what did your parents do in Baltimore? My dad is a doctor. My mom is a physical therapist. So I was a very sheltered child. Only child? No, I'm one of three. I'm the middle child. Right? Smack in the middle. I like that. Mm -hmm. So were cars and transportation, you mentioned Legos, were cars and transportation a part of your childhood, playing with Hot Wheels and things like that, or just turning your head when you see a cool car? Was that part of your childhood as well? I didn't become as much of a car guy as my dad is. My dad had, at one point, I don't know, six or seven cars in the driveway. He always liked unique ones. He had uh, a Mercor XR4Ti, 76 Cosworth Vega that he held on to and actually still has. He had a Ferrari Mondial. So he had a bit of a collection. So what inspired you then to go off to Cornell? which is an Ivy League school, very different than Baltimore. What was that journey like? At that time, I was getting much more into the technology side and wanted to be an engineer. So I actually was looking for a great engineering program. Obviously, Cornell is a great school. Honestly, I thought it was the best place for me to go, even though it's cold. (laughs) So I started off in the engineering school, but I actually didn't end there. I, I went into the economics department in my second year, which is actually where I finished. Interesting. Well, you mentioned the journey and the discovery, right? So you're still going through this process in your teens and 20s. Was there a particular professor or somebody that inspired you to then maybe look at the transportation or tech sector? Not really a particular professor or anything like that. I actually really didn't know what I wanted to do when I was coming out of Cornell. I was thinking about taking the LSAT, but I ended up getting a job in a company called the NANS company, which makes custom architectural hardware, uh, which is another name for very fancy doorknobs and hinges and things like that. I started in their Manhattan office in, in Soho. Within a few months, they were like, you might like working in our factory in Brooklyn better. And so I started learning basically how things are made, the way factories run. It was, a, it was not a big factory. It was about a 40,000 square foot factory, but kind of learned the ropes from the ground up. And then six months later, I was running the place. So I kind of just took to it immediately. And it was really manufacturing that came first for me and understanding the way things are made. And then just feeling through the way to optimize things and make processes run better and streamline things and systematize things that was attractive to me. And I think that's why I really took to it. It was just something factories to me are malleable. And I was given the opportunity to innovate in in process. And I, I think that's why I really took to it. So what you mentioned, the doorknob, is that really what it was, a yeah, hardware company? Door, door hardware. Yeah. You can call it a doorknob company. I look back on it fondly. Hey, every door that opens needs a doorknob, right? So (laughs) pretty pretty important gateway there. But what did you do right after that? So basically went straight into business school from working there. So I worked there for about three years in my early 20s and then went to business school at 25. During the, uh, the recession, 
I didn't really come back around to transportation until I came out to the West Coast on our tech trek. So I was trying to get jobs at Google and Apple and didn't. But while I was here on the West Coast, I was staying with some friends' parents actually from Cornell. And they handed me a newspaper clipping about a tiny little company trying to make electric cars. And I was like, okay, that's for me. What year was that? 2009. So you're pretty young when all this is happening. And recently, you were actually named by several media outlets as you know, 40 under 40 to watch, which is pretty cool um, now that you're in the EV boom. But let's going to go back to the EV boom. So you, you get a glimpse of the valley. Tell me about your what that interview process was and kind of your lens was in, into the valley and, and how that ignited your curiosity. So my, uh, my entry into Tesla was one of persistence, I think. I found the head of manufacturing at the time on LinkedIn, and I kind of bugged him until he gave me my, uh, my MBA internship for the summer. Every MBA has to do a summer internship in between the two years to go get some, some work experience. I think a lot of people go into corporate finance or they go into marketing roles at big CPG companies. Mine was very different to go work for a 200-person company in Silicon Valley taking a moonshot. So I think that was really a special experience and also one where I got to have a real impact on the company. Interestingly enough, when I came back for the second year for Corporate Finance 2, we did a project on Tesla to value them at their IPO, which was pretty funny after I had been working there. How did that feel like to have more wisdom in your pocket? I think I got an A on that project. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So what was the primary focus at at Tesla? What was your role there? It changed over time. I was basically always in powertrain manufacturing. My first focus was on the Toyota RAV4 EV program where I was program managing the production side of it. Then it went into getting the Fremont powertrain manufacturing area up and running. So various aspects of working with the manufacturing engineering team, the production team, the materials team, kind of standing in the business systems, putting in the business systems, various things on on getting that up and running. And then it shifted to uh, Gigafactory for over two years. So from very, very concept stage, all the way through mega project construction phase. So that was a capstone experience for me at Tesla. Tesla is famous for its advanced factory line, including several well-publicized incidents where Elon Musk announced rapidly increased production targets. In the following segment, Mark explains how the production cycle went into hyperdrive during his tenure at the Tesla Gigafactory. When you're talking about electric vehicles, including the output of cars also means increasing the manufacturing of high-performance and cost-effective batteries. The shorthand term for this is cell manufacturing. So to put it in perspective, because everyone is enamored, particularly in the Silicon Valley, you look left, right, you look straight ahead, you see a Tesla, right? So it's kind of this assumption, there's this magic place where these cars are just pushed out. But you're on the ground floor of building this Gigafactory, which is now world-renowned. Can you take us on a little bit of a journey, what it was like to go from this inception into actual completion? What was that experience like for you? Basically, the problem statement was, it was the first quarter of 2013, and Tesla had just turned a quarterly profit. We had achieved the full run rate that we were expecting, which was a run rate that's going to seem small for Tesla, but uh, 20000 per year, so 400 per week. 
And there was a moment of recognition by the market that the company might make it. So basically, Elon said, let's ramp it up as fast as possible. And so all of the areas of the supply chain were basically able to accommodate a doubling of production, but not battery cells. And so that kind of essentially was the inception of getting cell manufacturing under Tesla's control. And so the idea was, let's go figure out cell manufacturing for ourselves. That turned out to be a lot harder to do, being that there's a lot of tribal knowledge and a lot of investment and a lot of capability that you have to build over time in order to execute cell manufacturing properly. So essentially, the journey started by following every single operation to make a cell, both at the cell manufacturing site and through the supply chain. So we traveled around in Asia throughout the world to go see all these operations and understand the full value chain, understanding each supplier and their particular constraints, as well as understand where the cost gets built up so that we could essentially determine what operations we wanted to have on our manufacturing site where we're going to make cells. At the same time, we did a site selection program and we were looking around the world. It came down to in the States, we were looking at five different states, ultimately chose Nevada. And that was due to a number of factors, not least of which the ability to move fast on permitting and close proximity to Fremont. So how many square feet ultimately did that manufacturing space become? I don't know what it ultimately became exactly. I think it's three million and change um, if I'm ballparking it correctly, but I wasn't there for the end of it. I was there for the development of it, the design of the first phase of it, and the construction of the first phase of it. But ultimately, they ended up editing the plans after I left. And I think the scope has changed pretty rapidly on what they're making there exactly from what we originally intended. And I don't think it's been a straight path for them either. Yeah. Well, I imagine every time you see a Tesla and a Toyota RAV4, it's like, hey, I was part of that. Of course. Did you realize like when you had that, we talk about the light bulb moment, but in your case, it's the doorknob moment that you were literally that experience would evolve to the magnitude of the Tesla project when you were in it. Did that come to fruition for you thinking, wow, all those skills now amplified. I was talking to somebody yesterday how I've become more ambitious as I've gotten older rather than less. And this person was telling me that they were their most ambitious in college and they've become more conservative over time. I think I've become more and more ambitious as I get older, which I think is weird. What drives that? I think that the farther I go in my career, the more opportunity I think is out there for me based on the experience that I have and the knowledge that I've gained over time, and also just self-belief and confidence that I'm the X factor and I can, I can make things happen in, in a way that I probably didn't believe at, at, at a younger age. So after Tesla, you went to Zooks, I would say early pioneer in, in, in transportation. What did that knowledge bring to you? Yeah. So after Tesla, joining Zooks was going all the way back to the very, very beginning of the company. I think I was like number 20 or number 30 there. And they were very much at the ideation stage. So I think that Zooks represented the biggest vision possible 
what could be done if you really scale multiple business models altogether. I think that was also their downfall. And the reason that they didn't probably execute exactly to their plan, hopefully with Amazon being their acquirer, they can. But I think that kind of opened opened up my eyes to the big Silicon Valley vision, the big Silicon Valley pitch, what was really possible from salesmanship and showmanship and creating that quintessential Silicon Valley absolute moonshots and and seeing how that could be done from the entrepreneur standpoint. And even though I was there to do supply chain and manufacturing, I think seeing that for the first time was really, really valuable for me. I never really got to see that at Tesla. I was never in in those sort of meetings. But seeing that at Zooks, I think was powerful for me. Yeah. Well I think it's interesting is that the the market it's been evolving super fast, right? It's not even like a decade. It's like everything is just happening to micro speed. So 2017, you were co-founder of Monarch Tractor. And I'm just curious from the inception of that company, the prior experiences that you had in manufacturing. Now you can join Monarch as co-founder and president, taking on even a bigger role. And you're still under 40. So (laughs) what was your excitement in joining the Monarch co-founders, which we've also featured on the show, Carla Mandavi and Praveen Pametsa, amazing uh, pioneers individually. And, and then you bring the manufacturing and operational expertise. So what was that? What, how did that feel? So I had the good fortune of meeting Praveen and our fourth co-founder, Zachary, when I was at Zooks. They were working for, for Zooks to put together the first mules for the bi-directional vehicle that we were creating. So I had come to know them, their talents, their expertise, uh, tremendous respect for them as well. And even though the company was founded in 2017, I didn't join and Carlo didn't join And we really didn't get going operationally until the end of 2018, which is really when we started putting things together. To be honest, Praveen started talking to me about this in in 2017, and it just wasn't the right time. But um, by the time 2018 came around, though, I think I was ready to explore it. And I was looking at the agricultural space and realized that there was nothing from electrification whatsoever. No electrified vehicles, just a completely blank space for a vehicle type that everybody knows. It's not like a, a yard hostler in a, in a port where it's a very, very unique use case. Everybody knows about tractors, what they do, but no electrified vehicles. The other thing from the manufacturing side that I found was if you look at a farm operation and understand what it is, a farm is a factory for food. And what I didn't see was manufacturing process, manufacturing discipline, manufacturing technologies, manufacturing management of what should be a manufacturing process. And I think that that was the light bulb moment for me, having worked around automated processes basically for my entire career in manufacturing. Looking back even further than that, I mean, factories have been getting automated since the 80s, but none of that was really there in the farming space. So Understanding from the Zook side what the capabilities of autonomy could be, understanding from the manufacturing side what the capabilities of automation could be, and then, of course, the electrification experience was the aha moment for me. Hey there, it's Donna. I want to invite you to go check out some of our past conversations with game changers and innovators who are shaping our future. Like Neve O'Connell, who joined the show to talk about blockchain and how it can help authenticate and even secure the food supply chain. 
Today, we're really in a world where we have access to so much information, too much information, and it's hard to decipher what is in fact authentic, what is real and what's not. So this technology is really providing a new foundation that can enable us to make more informed decisions. And it's applicable really to every single vertical and every single person on this planet. I learned something, actually a lot of somethings, every time I talk to a new guest. They're pioneers. They're thought leaders in their fields. They all have inspiring stories to tell, and I share them with you every week. So if you're enjoying these episodes, please hit subscribe and join me for more stories about the moments before it happened. So let's talk about the Monarch tractor itself, the MK5. It's the first of its kind, fully electric, driver optional, smart tractor. But based on your experience that you had with Tesla and with Zeus, how is your approach? You just described something I think is really important is that you hadn't even thought about it, right? But through your new lens of looking at where the potential was, how did you approach your manufacturing process and your vision for how you're going to bring this first of its kind tractor to market? And how is your approach different than the Gigafactory? It's vastly different. Just going back to first principles, when and why do you implement automation? There's two reasons to implement automation. One is for speed that a human cannot do. The second is for quality that a human cannot do. Both are good reasons to implement automation. With respect to speed, we don't have that in tractors. The global tractor market is 3 million units per year approximately. And the automotive market, the light automotive market is about 80 million units per year. So we're looking at a different order of magnitude. Also fragmentation in our space, being smaller tractors, highly fragmented market. So lots and lots of companies have a small yet significant market share, whereas the big, big tractors out there is much more concentrated. And so a fewer number of companies have a relatively large market share, but the quantities at the large vehicle space are much, much smaller. So the volume is in the lower horsepower space, but the fragmentation is also there. So when you look at it, what the possibility is for us and our technology is, let's say one day we're able to take 10% market share, just throwing it out there as a goal. That would be 10% of the market. That would be huge. That's like being a Toyota-sized player in the tractor market. 300,000 vehicles is a relatively small car program. It does invite automation if they're all the same car type. So for like a Toyota Corolla or a Honda Accord, you're going to see tons of automation there. But really, even getting there, that would take a long time to, to get that sort of volume. So what that means is for us in the beginning is we're looking at a first year of 2,000 vehicles, a second year kind of getting into the tens of thousands. You don't see automation at those sort of run times, those sort of cycle times, those sort of tack times. It just doesn't invite automation. You can eliminate some non-value added labor through conveyance and things like that. But on the process side, you really won't see at 2,000 vehicles, you're looking at one vehicle per hour. Yeah, I think um, a lot of people visualize from the early ages, you know, Henry Ford to the present, these mass manufacturing floors, assembly plants, and then the robots are coming in and building. What Take us on a journey into your manufacturing. We'll talk about the Foxconn in a bit, but in Livermore, California, what would one see in walking through your factory? 
So basically what we're doing here in Livermore is what I would call our industrialization plant. It's not a production plant. And the difference is what we're doing here is the last step in validation. The first step in validation is just concept validation, science, technology, and duct tape. Can we make this thing run, run autonomously? Will it work? Will the technology work? Then after that, what we do is we create a beta, and beta is a pretty well-understood nomenclature. But for us, it looks like, works like prototype. It's something that we can use for product market fit and customer validation that we have the right product. Then we validate, and then we go and really design for, for production. We have to validate the engineering before we can validate the production process. So the third step is that engineering validation, making sure that we can hit functionality requirements, durability requirements, all of those sort of things. It has to go through a rigorous amount of testing. Then comes the hard part for us on the manufacturing side, which is how do we validate the production process and how do we get that first bit of churn out of the product as we start to scale just a little bit. So for us, that's building 50 vehicles here on the front end of production. And many car companies, they do this and they don't sell the vehicles, but we will. And the reason that we can is because they're going to be high quality enough for us to be able to deliver to the customers. But we're going to get that churn out of the product that happens at the beginning of the production process here, which is why we call that industrialization. Once we're through with the industrialization process, then we kick it over to our partners at Foxconn so that they can really scale it. So we're going to have a very low-tech, hand-built process, but it is going to be a manual process that we can verify product quality. Yeah, almost like a custom a customization, I, you know, I think it's interesting, is the industrialization component is it's really not different some of the best practices from the early automotive industry, right? But you also have pilots. And so you've not just created these and, and, you know, within the manufacturing plant, but you actually have farmers that are using these products and pilot program. So it's not just a lab. So I think, can you talk about how that has been valuable for you in refining and augmenting the manufacturing process? Absolutely. I think, most of what we've gotten out of the pilots is that customer validation and those final tweaks that we've had to put into the engineering validation process. So we built, and I would call it part of that beta process that we were describing, where we built 15 pilot units. And we've been deploying them, working with a host of different farmers across the board, understanding their operations. And that's one of the nuances that we have as a company. We don't see ourselves as an electric autonomous tractor company. We see ourselves as folks who are automating farm operations. And from that standpoint, we're actually very focused on the quality of the operations and our ability to serve the farmer's need from the operation standpoint, much more than the vehicle. The vehicle is going to be what it is from the operations rather than the vehicle by itself. And that's a pretty big difference from the automotive market where it's very much about the vehicle and not about what the vehicle can do for, from an economic standpoint. Otherwise, everything would look like uh, a trolley car. <laughs> yeah, more about the, the, the driver user consumer experience versus the impact, right? Although I think drivers and more of us are becoming more conscious with you know, the EV push. But in general, it's it's all about the experience. So let's go back and talk about the importance of the recently your partnership with Hanhai Foxconn 
major uh, manufacturing plant in Ohio. That's a pretty significant, not just to Monarch, but to the industry. Can you describe what that really means in terms of your scalability and bringing the best of its best of breed tractor to market? But I imagine that the process was pretty daunting and the customer validation that you just described was probably very important in that decision-making as well. Yeah, so I think, first of all, what the relationship with Foxconn brings to Monarch is, one, a very, very capable team, facility, and equipment that's ready to scale our product. Two, it's great validation for us because Foxconn doesn't get into business for a thousand vehicles. They get into business for tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands. I mean, within their other product lines, they make millions, tens of millions, and hundreds of millions of things like your iPhone. So they're in it for scale. I think what they're doing in in Ohio is special for, for a number of reasons. I think the industry needs somebody like Foxconn that can take folks like Monarch who are going to struggle to reach automotive volumes due to the nature of the market and give them an opportunity to compete with companies that it does make sense to vertically integrate like Tesla, where they can generate a competitive advantage. We believe that we can derive our competitive advantage from working with Foxconn and industrializing our vehicle with them, which is why we're, we're doing it. We can't do it on our own, but the pooled resources across that factory give us the chance to do that. And that's very unique. And so I'm very excited about our partnership with them. It's exciting. So in your role now, I think one of the things that's so important is that you are really driving this new era of manufacturing in the EV space. The agriculture market is one of the, the last frontiers. So let's talk more about that intention. So we're talking about transportation cars in general or to really about the experience, but you have a lot more thoughtfulness into the imagineering of the tractor and the impact that it has within the industry. So let's talk about that a little bit more. How is the Monarch tractor, the MK5, in some ways democratizing what's needed to have done in the agriculture? So we have diesel tractors. And according to the Environmental Protection Agency, uh, the EPA, which is an important entity, agriculture industry is accounts for 11% of U.S. greenhouses and emissions in 2020. And I'm assuming that number could be going up or down, but with Monarch, it's going to go down. So let's talk about the problem that you're addressing. So I think the problem is is a couple of different things. One is, is exactly what you're describing with respect to the EPA. So yes, the U.S. is 11% from the agriculture sector, but worldwide, it's about 20%. And that's just because of the level of industrialization that we have here in the United States. We're much more industrialized than the majority of the countries out there. Actually, a less industrialized country is probably getting 50% of their greenhouse gas emissions from the agriculture sector. So what we see is 20% across the world. Not that much of it is from direct tailpipe emissions, to be frank. About 1% of global greenhouse gas emissions are from tailpipes in the agriculture sector. It's a big number nonetheless, but many of the emissions are actually from the practices that are used. And the reason that those practices are used are economically based. So 
the operations that the farmers perform are the most economically sound for them today. And for them, what that means is optimizing labor, optimizing inputs, and optimizing outputs. So how do they do that? And inputs could be fuel, inputs could be chemicals, and inputs essentially are equipment. So what they do is they, over the years, have been scaling equipment larger and larger and larger in order to gain that economic advantage, which is why you see consolidation in farms at the national level, at the international level. Essentially, globally, farms are consolidating because the smaller ones get eaten by the bigger ones. And then bigger equipment comes out, which are more economically viable. If you can remove the constraints from the operation that are economic, basically the labor costs and the fuel costs, then different practices may become more optimal by by farmers, which could change the output of greenhouse gas emissions from the operations. Many of this is from tilling, use of chemicals, things like that. And I'm not saying eliminate all of it. I'm saying slowly change based on what may be more optimal. And, And that becomes quite interesting to think about from a greenhouse gas emission standpoint. It's ultimately the practices that drive it, not necessarily the vehicles. The vehicles are a part of it, but a small part of it. It's the practices that need to change. And so if the practices are economically pinned, if we can unpin them, then the practices can change. And the farmer and the tractor become companions, right? Because it's part of the labor team. It's not just a tractor. Exactly. I think that's a great way to put it. So these tractors are truly made in the U.S.? The tractor is assembled here in the U.S. Many of the parts in the supply chain come from the U.S., but many of the parts in the supply chain also come from overseas. We have parts coming from India, from Europe, from China, from Taiwan, from Korea. I think we would like to onshore as many parts as possible, but some things are only made in certain parts of the world. Um, Some things can only be mined in certain parts of the world. I think we have a lot of catching up to do, especially in the battery value chain. You just rattled off some really big agriculture regions. So this is a, a global a, a global need. What is the high cost of not deploying more sustainable tractor process? I think we have a, a challenge as humanity. The amount of arable land in the world is finite. It's fixed. Those regions may change and move northward in the northern hemisphere, but essentially the amount of land that we have to farm on is is stationary. What that means is we have to become more productive as humanity. There's going to be like 10 billion people by the the middle of the century on the planet. How are we going to feed them? The only way is by making our farmland more productive. And there's a limit to how productive you can make farmland with today's practices. And it requires automation and it requires electrification. And those two things together are going to drive different economics that govern different practices. And those practices are going to make farmland more productive year after year after year. Just as Tesla revolutionized the EV car market, Monarch Tractor is an early innovator disrupting the economics of agriculture for farmers around the world. Bringing the first tractor of its kind, this means cleaner farming and lower emissions, an industry success with benefits for all of us, one harvest at a time. Thank you for listening. Follow Before It Happened on Instagram and Twitter. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and share the show wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Before It Happened is produced by me, Donna Laughlin, along with Studio Pod Media. The executive producer is Katie Sunku Wood. And all episodes are written and developed by Susanna Camp, with additional editing and music provided by Noda Lab. <laughs>